0: Hey everybody, episode 13 of the Because I'm Carlos podcast, only days after the previous one. There was a bit of a mishmash, but it was kind of by design that way. I didn't plan on producing another episode so soon, but I did have a singular topic that I could touch on that I felt was worthy of uh, having a little bit of a discussion in this format. As always, as I like to mention, uh, I'm going to be talking about a specific topic, but if there's ever any links, in this case there are, I'm going to include links in the description of both the YouTube video uh, as well as in the audio version itself so you can check it out yourself. And what I want to talk about today is Josh Luber's essay. We'll call it uh, his essay or his paper. Basically, trading cards are cool again, and this was published on November the fourth and uh, was available through his Instagram. And it's got its own website, so that you can check it out either as a PDF or read through it with uh, various footnotes. Now, there's a couple of levels in which I'm interested in this. One of them is that obviously with Josh Luber, you know, assuming the role shortly of be- taking over kind of the sports card business side of Fanatics' new venture uh, and his own role, you know, his increasing profile in the hobby, it is interesting whenever uh, somebody in that position starts to talk about anything related to the market or history or anything related to it as well. Now he goes through great pains to kind of state that he had been working on this for a while. And to be honest, having read through it, it does show. And the the fact that he decided to take the time to put it together is very interesting. But also, while he doesn't want to consider it either to be a manifesto as he tries to, you know, push, push away any questions about that, but also says, you know, basically it's not meant to be a roadmap. It's meant to be his own evaluation of what's gone on and what he thinks as far as that's concerned, market health and all those matters. It's still useful because it tells you something about kind of the the way that he has decided to take the information that he's done. in. he's obviously done his research. And like I said, it shows based on the depth of the paper and also how he's decided to interpret the data points that he's been able to pull, how he decides to make his own arguments, how he, what information he decides to use for that, and how he has decided to interpret the signals and things that he has uh, been able to receive from the market. All those things lead into kind of getting a little bit of a glimpse in how his mind works as far as this is concerned, which might be something useful down the road as we enter into the fanatics era with all the licenses that they're gonna start taking over. Well, you might wanna get a little bit of a window into how the person who's gonna be leading that thinks, and this certainly is that window. Now, quick point is that I won't blame anybody for not wanting to read it. As I said, I'll include the links in the description. But it is a 53-page paper, and uh, in fairness, you know, one type one is the title page, and then some page of footnotes at the end, so a couple of those. So it's probably just under 50 pages. But nonetheless, in the world where a couple of sentences or a paragraph is, you know, too TLDR, uh, too lazy, didn't read. I don't expect too many people to uh, voluntarily uh, go in in there and read a 50-page paper. So in the course of the paper itself, I'm not gonna touch on every single individual point that he makes, but there are certain ones that I think are a little bit interesting. So he starts off with a little bit of history about uh, trading cards, which, which he pulls a couple of interesting points, I'll touch on that, and then talks about recent growth and volatility, and then also talks about the Q2 crash and his theories of of why that correction happened. And I think that probably is the most interesting section. He also talks about what inning we're in now, which is kind of fun. He breaks it up into prices, people, and companies, talks about some risk factors, some warning signs, and then does some comparison to the sneaker market, but given that he uh he was a founder of StockX is not too surprising. Now, with that all said, let's get into it. And like I said, I'll touch on a few different areas here. Uh, right off the top, if you go into the history section, it is good if you haven't been uh if you haven't learned too much about the history of the hobby before, and he does he does. Use a couple of books as part of his citations. Uh, in particular, when he's talking about the overproduction era, he talks about how in the early 90s, card companies were producing as many as 81 billion cards per year. And uh, the metric here was used he more than 300 for every man, woman, and child in the country. So that is kind of um, you know a good way of kind of visualizing it, and it kind of plays into some discussions I've had where I've had a little bit of fun talking with some folks about hey the overproduction era you know we're, that was the overproduction era like really the overproduction era, but part of the point here was to kind of you know contrast that to the current day and give you a little bit of a a little bit of a perspective in terms of how the market ballooned and exploded. It went up more than ten x during that time. But you know, Beckett Price Guy Beckett's Price Guide had a circulation of nearly a million subscribers. There, there was a lot there. So he's giving a lot of indicators of how this works. Now, an important note is that he's using this to kind of give you the uh, you know the flow of the market, and it reached the point where once. The apex hit, and then it started to turn. Then the amount of you know, collectors started to dwindle. And then the average age of these folks started to go up. So he cites a number that he says that by 2012, adult collectors outnumbered children two to one, according to industry estimates. And like everything else, it's an estimate. But again, he's trying to give you a little bit of a story of how uh, we ended up to this point. Now, what's going to be interesting here is that once we get into the topic of where we are as far as the current market, as opposed to where we were at that time, it really comes down to the idea of having an imbalance of supply, overwhelming demand. So really that's what it was. Overproduction era, lots of supply, not enough demand. So a reduction of demand in the a lot of supply already at that time. And that's resulted in a decrease in uh, a decrease in values and things of that sort. And by the way, this isn't reinventing the wheel because supply and demand dynamics, we've we've talked about this a million times. That's really always how these things always worked out. The main thesis of the paper is arguing that the current state is closer to the start of a run-up. So he's trying to argue that it's closer to 1984, beginning of the run-up originally, as opposed to the you know, the decline that took place right around 94-95. So the rest of the paper kind of spends a lot of time touching on elements of it that play into that. Of course, still reaching into some, uh, still reaching into some pop culture references and things. He does try to make it a more digestible read by breaking the essay up into these various pieces. And like I said, I will say, and I want to give tremendous credit, uh, being a being a history major who spends his a fair share of time reading a lot of uh, books and papers, academic papers r- written in different ways. Uh, he's done a reasonably good job of trying to keep it readable. But again, I go back to what I said earlier, I don't blame anybody for not wanting to read a 50 page paper, but I think it is instructive if you want to learn kind of how his mind works as far as doing the analysis. So I will not fault him for not doing the analysis because it's very clear based on the way he built a lot of these arguments that at least he's given it some thought. Whether I agree with everything he put in there or not is a different conversation and whether I agree with some of his sources, that's a different conversation as well. But there is no lacking for thought, which is probably a good thing as far as giving folks confidence that at least he, you know, he cares. At least cares enough to have put this together now after breaking down kind of the different sections let's talk about recent growth and volatility and that's kind of what he wants to use so this is a this is the first section where i'm going to take a moment and i want to make a quick point about this so he uses as a baseline the card ladder cl50 index now those of you who may be familiar with my uh, youtube channel would know that both josh and chris who are two of the three founders of card ladder have been on my live streams before As uh, doing some interviews and discussing. So, I think I've had Chris on two or three times and Josh on once as well and talked about different things. My relationship with those guys is pretty good in the sense that uh, I've been very friendly with them and chatted with them quite a bit. Where here and there, uh, we don't talk all the time, but it's one of those things where whenever I've reached out, uh, we've been able to communicate very well. But, With that said, and I also wanna make note that I do uh, have a subscription to the Card Ladder service and I've made some use out of it. However, I've also noted in various videos on my channel some of the limitations. And this is where the CL50 index comes into play. And this is kind of important. And and, uh, I also wanna give credit to Josh here writing this is that he does acknowledge in one of his footnotes that there are some weaknesses here. He says the CL50 is not a perfect index, but it is directionally correct And for illustrative purposes, the best index we have for the sports card market. The latter portion of it, I do agree with that, because nobody else has really tried to endeavor to do this. But I will point out right now, at this point, is that you gotta bear in mind that this index comprises of 50 cards that are chosen by the team at Card Ladder, which is all fine and dandy. Except one of the limitations of Card Ladder, which I've said repeatedly in the past, is that the database, while it is growing, is still woefully small to be able to try to draw any big overarching market conclusions. They've got a lot of the quote unquote, important cards of the hobby, but it is still very basketball heavy. So it's one of those things that is kind of the preference of the founders and a lot of the folks that are using the service are very much in the basketball camp. Now, obviously basketball cards are driving a lot of market activity, but when you're running, when you run through the list of the 50 cards, then you can start looking at it. And just to name a few, just bear this in mind, If I give you a list of 50 cards and I say, okay, you want, you have to give me a cross section of the hobby and we're going to use 50 cards to do it. Well, then you're going to need to try to cover all the different sports. You're going to need to try to cover a lot of these, and you've only got 50 slots. So you got to be really picky and very particular. And then it becomes almost a matter of, okay, even if you manage to pick some cards that make a lot of sense, why specifically did you select that version of it? Because the the database at the time that I'm recording this has less than 18,000 cards in it and If I've got a card that has a PSA nine and a PSA 10, those are both considered one card each. So in reality, it's not really 18,000 cards. And like I said, it is very basketball dominant. Although, you know, the imbalance has improved over time. There are no soccer cards in that uh, 50 index. There is a Pokemon card in it, uh, but you know, there is no F1 cards. Again, these are relatively niche markets in the grand scheme of things, but just bear in mind that, you know, if I wanna say a cross section of trading cards as a whole, It is very difficult to do in a list of 50 cards. Uh, Maybe down the road, as that database gets bigger, it may become a CL500 index. And I think at that point, it'll probably have an easier time uh, putting together uh, an index that will be that will do a better job of getting a bigger cross section. But to Josh Luber's point, it is probably the best we have. So I guess we'll have to make do. But I just want to make sure that you understand the limitations of it as I continue going through some points in this paper in part using the chart, was leading into the section here where Josh Luber talks about how the how the market has gone with its ups and downs. Basically, the characteristic was this boom bust. With each boom, the market very quickly surpasses the previous high, and it would be the cycle. So you would go in, you know, you'd know, you have an increase, a run-up, and then you'd have a decline, and then you would go up from there. But every time the booms would get bigger, and basically uh, you know, in 2020, uh, you had this huge monster run-up, and in 2021, you had another one. So... Part of the big catalyst he uses an example of this was the two PSA 10 Michael Jordan rookies that sold for a record, 738,000 at the time each. And, you know, almost immediately after, there was a bunch that were thrown into the market. Uh, Golden Auctions got a round of funding uh, with the Shernan Group, uh, which I've covered on the uh, both on the podcast and on the YouTube channel in the past. So there was a lot of stuff going on at that time, and a lot of money was getting thrown into the hobby. And a lot of this is acknowledged, and it's kind of important. So I'm going to skip ahead past, you know, as I'm talking you through this, I'm going through the paper. I want to skip ahead through a little bit of it. He does include a chart in which he actually uses the CL50 chart to mark off different times where different events happened, where the last dance happened, when the COVID shutdown began, uh, you know, the NBA draft. But if you notice, again, kind of making to my point, is that he's putting in the NBA, uh, you know, timelines on these different things. Again, the NBA market has certainly been quite a catalyst of a lot of this and has been a catalyst to a lot of the grading boom. But you got to remember that the NBA is, isn't the only sport that trading cards are in. We've got all those other categories. But again, uh, on an index that's very basketball heavy, you're certainly going to have more of an emphasis on that. As far as far And the last stand certainly uh, precipitated in quite a big part of that run-up. So let's uh, kind of skip ahead a little bit more. A lot of comparisons to it. So let's talk about the crash itself. So this is the Q2 crash and his theories. So this is where I want to kind of focus a little bit of my attention on, because this is where he theorizes as to why. Now in this section he wants to argue that it was not a broader crisis. Uh, he wants to explain that the market is moving in predictable cycles a boom and bust and it's just another instance of the cycle. Now again, you're using the uh, you're using the index to kind of include it, but the feature that he's including here is that it's consistent and there's a lot of price stability between the 10-year period between 2004 and 2014 and the four-year period between 2016 and 2020. So there was a lot of that, uh, but a slow increase. So prior to all of that, you know, there's been a steady increase over time where the numbers have steadily been going up, which is what's happening. But again, we're only really been fixated on the last, you know, 24 months or so because we've seen obviously these gigantic moves. But if you break it out over time, there has been this slow incline uh, that obviously, you know, got exaggerated in the last 24 months. Now at this point is where we get into probably the meat of the whole thing where he explains a couple of his theories. So let's talk about them. So the first one is the general theory he puts in. So he puts in that there are two fundamental dynamics that developed during any quick run-up. Low cost basis and a decreasing number of high end buyers. The second one, specifically, I want to make sure I cover as well because I think it's very interesting. Uh, the most obvious, after fast run up on prices, many people would be left holding cards with low cost basis. So all that means is that you had like you know a PSA ten Jordan rookie prior to this entire run up, and maybe it cost you a couple of thousand dollars. So you, because you've had it for years, and then all of a sudden it's going for six figures and pushing up into almost seven, it's almost seven figures, and it costs you a couple of thousand dollars. So you've got this low cost basis, whereas now the price is much higher. So you kind of have to think about how this has gone. And to illustrate this, he uses, uh, you know, the Wayne Gretzky 79 OPG rookie, the Tom Brady 2000 Bowman Chrome, Kobe Bryant's PSA, uh, tops Chrome, and then Kevin Durant's to give an example of how there was a run up in a lot of this stuff where it was a lot less expensive, not that long ago, back in February, 2020. And, you know, there was an apex in February, 2021, and then it's back down a little bit, but still much higher than it was back in February, 2020. So just as an example, now his point is when you've got this kind of disparity between what it would have been, you know, a year, year and a half ago in terms of value and cost, and you've got these high-end cards and all of a sudden they've gone up by 10x or in some cases, if you've had it for years and years, it's gone up maybe even as much as 100 times, what are you going to do? He goes, his argument is that, well, you're going to sell at least some of them. And then that is where you get a bit of a flood. And the example was the Ken Golden, after the, sa- the two Jordan sales, received 40 PSA 10 Jordans. And that's a very large percentage because there, were only th- there are 319 of them currently in PSA 10's population report. So 13% of the population hit the market around the same time. So that's kind of a big deal. Now, this leads into that second point that I was making. Uh, so now he talks about his general theory and he focuses on the buyers. So the rarer and more expensive the card, the fewer potential buyers exists. And with each sale of such a card, there is one less potential buyer for the next card. Now, I agree with this. I think this is very well stated. Um, and it is something that I've kind of discussed a little bit on the live stream, but I want to kind of reemphasize it here. When you take some of these high-end items, and this doesn't apply to something where there's thousands and thousands or tens of thousands of cards, but if you've got something that people actually want, and I've used this in a, in a very tiny example inside of my little fiefdom of Mike Medano cards that I collect with my PC. If I take some of these uh, lower print run cards that I go after there's only a certain pool of Mike Medano collectors and there's only a certain pool of them that are interested in some of the higher end stuff and are willing to pay for it. However, for example, if I go and I find one of these that I want and there's only five or 10 of them, it's relatively small you know, print run, once I've got it, I have very little interest in any of the other ones. So immediately I'm a buyer out of the market. And since I tend to be an aggressive buyer, that potentially could see an immediate drop off in how much the next one would sell for, whereas maybe there's a couple of us competing for when one comes up on the market, but then when the next one comes up on the market, even the removal of one of these people could have a huge impact in the price of the next one that goes up for sale. And the Michael Jordan card played out this way. You had these two that sold for over 700,000 and the next couple sold for substantially less. And it makes sense because realistically, unless someone is trying to hoard them and wants to pay the maximum price for every single one, Uh, The more that end up on the market, even if Golden tries to dole them out slowly, it was going to result in a much lower price, which is kind of what played out. So it's a good example because uh, 319 isn't like the smallest amount, but having 40 of them potentially available almost at the same time or within this months of each other is going to certainly have a, you know, downward pressure on the pricing. So that's kind of something you have to bear in mind. And that's kind of important. So the low cost basis thing resulted in people putting it on the market because all of a sudden these cards are worth much more and they're going to cash out and take some of it. Even if they've got multiple copies, they'll put a couple on the market, but that's going to increase the supply so that once it gets completely absorbed in the market and the people that really want them, you're going to have to have a lot of people that want them and also are able to afford it. So, and this has always been a key point of this whole supply and demand thing is that it's not enough to say that. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of people that want this. Yes, but how many people want it at that price? And this is always a point that I've emphasized over and over again is that I don't care if, quote unquote, everybody wants this thing. Some people don't have $1,000, $10,000, $100,000. So whether you want it or not is irrelevant. You might want a Maserati, but if you can only afford to use Honda, then your wants are not going to play into this. You're not part of that market. You're not going to be buying a Maserati anytime soon. So you have to understand that desire and the ability to act on that desire are two very different things, and one doesn't really play into the other. It's the only thing that matters when it comes to the demand is how many people in that group that demand that thing are actually able to afford it, and if enough of them are able to and push that price up and can still afford it and are willing to go there, that's when the price escalates. Otherwise, you reach the saturation point where, yeah, there is demand, but not at that price. The price has to come down to meet the demand again. And that's just common sense, you know, economics. You know, I'm not—we're not reinventing the wheel out here. But it is well stated, and I do want to agree with him in the example he used here. Uh, so I do agree with that. So quickly, I'm going to go forward, uh, and I'm going to skip through quickly through a little bit of this. Uh, he goes with his special theory, and that's carcho's crypto and closed grading. So these are three factors that he states that he believes were responsible for decreasing the prices. So the Jordan example was an example where. The lower cost basis result in more people putting the cars on the market. That increased the amount of supply. So once people got their fill, well, then all of a sudden demand goes down. You've got this higher supply that depresses the price and brings a correction after this big run-up. So now we're talking about card shows. Well, basically, once in-person card show was returned, demand was no longer concentrated in a single market. So it means, and this is, again, a very good point. Uh, So like I said, as we go along, Josh Luber does make some good points here that I think are worth at least discussion. So basically, having more ways and avenues to be able to buy these cards basically creates a scenario where previously, if we were unable to go to card shows, we were unable to do things in person, et cetera, et cetera, it means that people who wanted to buy these things would have to go onto eBay. Well, now we've got more platforms and we've got card shows. So it means you can go to a card show and potentially buy the thing. Well, that isn't going to appear on eBay and it's not going to appear as a comp, quote unquote, that will appear in one of these data analytics tools. So it means sales can be happening all the time over there at the same price, at a higher price, or even a lower price. And if they're not being accounted for, they're not going to appear in the data analytics tool. So it also drives a potential amount of demand. So somebody that wants to buy it goes to the car show, gets the card they want. Okay, they're satisfied. Then they're not going to be a they're not going to be a competitor in the eBay auction that's coming up for the exact same card. They've already got the one they wanted, so they're out. Well, if enough people are out, it goes back to what I said earlier. If it's a lower, you know, a lower um, print run card, then it only takes a couple of people getting out to suddenly depress the price. Well, if that eBay auction completes at a much lower price than the previous, all of a sudden we got a lower comp again, putting downward pressure on the price, because comps can kind of feed on each other. The same way it could snowball and push it up. It can snowball and push it back down. The next point here is just an example. Uh, you know, some examples given about the whole crypto market and just trying to use a bit of an example on the price of Bitcoin as kind of an indicator. Uh, I can I can see it. I think it's um, I, I he used kind of the chart of the price of uh, of Bitcoin and kind of Matt was able to match it up with the Card Ladder Index. But he, here's what I'll say about that. Um, there certainly can be some connection to it. Um, I don't know how strong the connection is between people that happen to be buying Bitcoin and people that are then converting some of that money into sports cards. Because if crypto goes up, you know, then people potentially have more money and they could be spending more on these things. And then if crypto goes down, then maybe they or maybe money's shifting into crypto as they see it as a better opportunity. So these things can be happening. But I think the connection, the connection between Bitcoin and sports cards, it, it I won't say it doesn't exist. It's certainly, you know, there's certainly a little bit of a connection, but I'd be very interested in seeing what the actual amount of people that are involved in the crypto space are really thinking about these sports cards a lot, as opposed to folks that are just thinking about the crypto space and are kind of obsessed and, you know, tunnel vision with that versus folks that are kind of tunnel vision on the sports card side of thing. But his point is that after crypto saw a crash of its own, it makes sense that negative effects would spill over. If you're a new investor who just saw 50% of your wealth evaporate in months, it probably has a generalized effect on your psyche. I get his point, but I think the connection is a little looser than he lets on. But it is a theory. I, I, don't, mind, I don't mind him including it, but it is kind of an interesting theory. Now, the third one here about you know, his general thoughts and theories about the correction is PSA being closed. And I think this one is an interesting one as well. And basically, the point is that while PSA was open and while they were able to absorb uh, the demand initially. Obviously, the demand got to a point where it was huge, that it created a huge backlog and they had to shut it down. But the point is that there was a moment in time there as the market was starting to superheat right as uh, COVID hit and the last dance and all that was happening. People were submitting cards in droves over to PSA and Beckett and all the other third party graders because the opportunity was there to potentially convert some of these cheap cards and relatively cheap grading available at that time to be able to flip these cards and then you know be able to buy $10 cards and sell them for $100 or $150 or $200. Well, that's basically creating free money, so to speak. Which certainly motivated people to send a ton of stuff that would otherwise have made no sense to send in. And anybody remembers, you know, 2020, the early part of 2020, there was a lot of that going on. And people that had, you know, PSA 10s of these relatively common base cards from these junk sets uh, were able to sell them for multiples of the grading fee plus the card fee or the, the price and value of the card. It was like creating free money for a little while there. Well, if you find yourself in a situation now where PSA was pushed so far into the brink that they had to kind of shut it down and suddenly uh, you know, slowly dole out these uh, different service levels that are substantially higher, um, as the time that I'm recording this and talking to you, the lowest price for PSA is $150 a card. Well, you're not gonna be sending in your $5 and $10 base cards for $150 grading, even though if you were to send it in right now, you'd probably get it back pretty quick, all things considered. The folks that are waiting a year plus were the folks that got in at that much lower rate uh, and sent in 500 or 100 or 1,000 cards, well, they're part of that glut that is you know, only now slowly starting to dislodge and get out. Well, some of that stuff will start to come in, and at some point, PSA will be able to bring back some of these lower price levels, but it certainly took a lot of the steam out of that segment of the market, and that's kind of his overarching point, which I do agree. And the ability of folks to be able to you know, buy some wax relatively inexpensively at the time, obviously, now it's more expensive, and then be able to take these things and flip So the buy grade flip strategy, well, when it's gone, it loses the liquidity. So now you're no longer, you know, the boxes are more expensive and grading's more expensive. So you're not able to flip that stuff. You're not able to make the easy money. The easy money has gone out. The flipping, easy flipping has also gone out of it. You got to work a lot harder to make a lot less margin. It certainly will take a lot of the steam out of that and push again. Another factor that is putting downward pressure on prices as people may not find themselves with enough money to be able to play in that game and keep pushing things up. It slows down the momentum and it creates downward pressure. So it is kind of a, it is a very good example of the kind of thing. And he gives his own examples as far as that's concerned as well, uh, personal examples and I do agree that uh, that is that does have an impact. The next section kind of goes through a chronological timeline of different uh, card and bi- industry related events. There was a lot. But then he gets into a certain point where he starts thinking about, and part of the, including the chronological of all those events, is to try to justify that there is a lot more money coming into the overall market. There's a lot going on with it. And another point that he's trying to make is that even though there was that slowdown, eBay sales actually grew. To over a billion for a quarter, which is huge. Um, And then again, and then from here, it's going into what are the indicators that would be encouraging? Well, one of them is that 46% of attendees in the national were first timers. An average attendee was, you know, in his estimation, 25 years younger than two years prior. So if you're getting a younger base of folks coming in and participating in these hobby events, from his perspective, that's a big deal. And then the next part is he talks about, you know, what inning things are in and uses comparison of it. I'm going to stop my uh, my review of this now at this stage because I would leave that to you to consider and read on your own uh, because I think the market dynamics that he covered in the previous section are probably the more interesting part for me. Uh, talking about what, where the companies are in the second, third, or fifth inning is not really that interesting to me on my end of it. I did read it all. Um, and I think, I think his points are interesting. But I think the overall takeaway that I have a lot about this is that He seems still very bullish about it. And obviously that was kind of the overarching point. And it is kind of interesting to see uh, what ended up happening as he started doing his analysis. And like I mentioned at the very beginning of this entire discussion, while it might not be a roadmap of what he plans to do with the whole Fanatics thing, it is very illustrative that he does see all these signs that he thinks are going to potentially keep things going as far as the card market is concerned. But... When we talk about how to think about the future, and he goes to that section, so I'm skipping ahead a little bit, and this is the last piece I want to do, he does a lot of comparisons to talking about comparisons to the sneaker market. And this is, above all else, the section where I think it does, while it might not be a roadmap, it is something to bear in mind once he really starts going in earnest with the fanatic side of things and they start figuring things out. One of his points about what makes sneakers uh, so viable, and he used a lot of sneaker related examples, you know, Jay Z related sneakers and then the, uh, you know, the Yeezy sneakers with Kanye West and all that. The point is that a lot of that there is an entire segment of that market operates on the exclusivity of certain things. When something becomes too available, then it wrecks the ability for them to be able to sell out. Well, if it doesn't sell out, it doesn't feel like people want it. The hype is basically the underlying thing that helps move the, the units. So you have to kind of create, you know, even if you believe you know you can sell 100, and he uses this type of example. If you know you can sell 100, you would be better served creating 91 and making sure you're under the actual demand, as difficult as it is to truly properly gauge, rather than produce exactly 100. Because if everybody has their fill, then they're all satisfied, then there's no real hype. There's no real uh, chase. Then people don't really feel like there's any kind of exclusivity to it, whether it's real or not, whether it's uh, accurate or not, and whether they should want it or not, just the feeling and understanding that they can't have it or that it's going to be difficult to find can can basically create and generate that hype and in turn actually increases the amount of demand and makes it easier for them to underproduce and basically leave the people wanting more. Well, doing that has worked in sneakers because it has allowed certain companies to be able to continuously sell out of a lot of product, and they create a lot of different products that uh, cater to that kind of market. And then they've got the, uh, and while he doesn't reference it directly, there is like the general release stuff that is like your bread and butter. It's always available. You go into the store uh, to buy a pair of shoes. They're always there in stock, as opposed to the stuff that people have to get in line for and try to you know win raffles and do all that for. I don't think sports cars are necessarily going to go in that direction. But just bear in mind that this is the world that Josh Lewer comes in from. And given that he's given this much thought to the whole supply and demand curve, that could very well at least, while not being a roadmap, could at least play some role in how he decides to envision uh, the production levels that they would think to be able to produce some of those products. So that's just an idea I kind of want to put in the back of your mind from reading this entire, from reading this essay. There's a lot lot more that I didn't touch on here, but given the runtime of this, you're going to see that there's, you know, I'm trying to encapsulate the key points of a 50-page paper into, uh, into less than a minute per page here. So I think I've been able to do that. I've tried to avoid some of the stuff that it kind of gets a little bit repetitive and examples that just go around and around, even though for the most part, I will say fairly well-written, some interesting uh, analogies and things given. And if you do have the time, I do recommend checking it out because it is an interesting window into an individual that would be very involved in the future of the hobby if you're interested in new product or where you think that might be going forward. Because as time goes on, he may change his mind, but that is where his thought process stands as of November 4th, 2021. All right. So that's it for this time around. This one was a little bit more, uh, a little bit more dense than even some of the other episodes that I've done where I try to keep it a little bit more light and a little bit broader ideas. But I do enjoy when there's something like this, because I think it's a more interesting uh, review and discussion about a kind of uh, what could potentially be something impactful going forward into the future. So what I'd be interested in is any thoughts you might have about this. Uh, You don't have to agree with a lot of what's on here. If you don't have the time to read it, totally understand. Hopefully I was able to give you some highlights of some of the stuff on here. And if you're curious a little about some of the more details, you can use the link provided in the description. Uh, But any thoughts about this in general? Um, Did you, if you did read any of it, did it change your opinion about Josh Luber? Did it change your opinion, either make you more pessimistic or optimistic or kind of leave you kind kind of in the middle, wherever you were before? Did it change any perception about any aspect of that? Are you looking forward to the Fanatics thing more so, given that his head is at least in that supply and demand side of things and he is giving some serious thought to it? Or did it not change anything for you at all? So there's a lot of directions you can go with that. Otherwise, uh, more videos coming up on the channel. Uh, the week that I'm recording this, there may or may not be a live stream. I don't know yet. Uh, but I will be doing some coverage, uh, at least some videos related to the Toronto Expo. And we'll be doing that. And then uh, go- upcoming weeks, we'll be doing more live streams on Fridays, the same way we have been going to up until this point. So anyway, that's it for me. Uh, like if you're checking it out on the YouTube. Like the video. Subscribe to the channel. If you're checking it out on the Strictly Audio version, if there's a place to put a comment or something in there, please do. Always appreciate any engagement or any thoughts that you might have. That'll be it for me this time around. Thanks very much for listening.